In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, please be seated. Pastor Rick Warren wrote a book titled a Pur- The Purpose Driven Life. Maybe some of you have read it. It was written in 2002. It sold over 50 million copies. And unless you think this has been a uniquely American phenomenon, the book has been translated into over 130 languages. When this book took off, I remember being dismissive of it before I had even read it. It's never a good thing. <laughs> but I was suspect of any book whose title includes the word driven. But it was also apparent to me that this book, a grand slam home run for Rick Warren, had also hit home. It addressed a deep hunger, a yearning in every human heart to live a life of purpose, to find meaning in our lives. My parents were part of the great missionary movement of the 20th century, when about 80% of the world's population, Christian population, this is in the early 1900s, 80% of the world's Christian population lived in the Western world and about 20% in the majority world. That has now flipped, due in part to the efforts of missionaries from the West. The surge, this surge of purpose, while it was not all sweetness and light, brought the gospel to the world and the sweetness and light of the gospel did prevail. And my parents were among those missionaries My mom died a few years ago. My brother told me that in her dying statement, by the way, my mom was a force. She was a missionary, by definition, a woman on a mission. She was deeply revered and deeply loved. And I say that because of what I say next. My mom's dying statement was, and my brother heard this, God, I have been your good and faithful servant. When my brother told me what she said, I thought, isn't isn't that what God is supposed to say to us? Such was my mom's desire that she had lived a life of purpose that, well, she sort of preempted God. (laughs) And if my mom said that to God, I am sure what God said to her was simply, Lelia, I love you. In our gospel reading for this morning, Jesus states his purpose for the disciples. We call this well-known passage the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. But before this mandate, we consider this mandate, the story provides a bit of backdrop. The disciples go to the mountain, and when they see Jesus, they worship him. You know, I think in our eagerness to fulfill the Great Commission, we sometimes get ahead of God, who works slowly. Kosuke Koyama, the great Japanese theologian, wrote a a great book called The Three-Mile-An-Hour God. (laughs) And if we're not eager to fulfill the Great Commission, the same applies. We would be much more inclined to make disciples if we become his disciples, which starts with worship, is sustained by worship, and ends with worship. Our colleague for the morning says the same. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship, and bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory. What is worship? Well, step two of the 12 steps of AA, uh, with which I have become recently very familiar, is by no means a definition of worship, but it gets at a crucial aspect of it. Come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Without God, our lives become unmanageable. Without God, the human ego takes the gifts God gives us and weaponizes them to our destruction. That is insanity. And it's only a vision of God which will restore us. 
The hymn we just sang, I wrote it down, Bright the Vision that Delighted. I think the Holy Spirit is involved in whoever puts his wonderful service together. Thanks to Lee and others. It's only a vision of God that will restore us. Marvel in me, God says, adore me, submit, rest. Worship puts us at rest. Creation, six days, and on the day God creates, and on the seventh day, God does not feverishly dash to the finish. He rests in his goodness, expressed in this good earth of mankind, and from which he formed us and made us in his image, from dust, from dirt, and into which he breathed the breath of life. So the disciples worship, they put their trust in Jesus, and there's a beautiful caveat, well, I don't know if it's beautiful, interesting caveat, some doubt it, but that's for another sermon. <laughs> our purpose in life begins with and arises out of worship, which, which puts us in our place. We are not God. It puts us in the right posture with God. It's about him, not us. Rick Warren wrote in, writing about his book, uh, the first four word of his, words of his book, it's not about you. And he said this, sometimes I think I'm tested 50 times a day on that sentence. It's not about you. When he's praised by others, he remembers it's not about him. And when he is criticized unfairly, he remembers it's not about him. This takes the pressure off us. When I was younger, I was trying to be God's good and faithful servant. This was very noble, but it made me very anxious. We had a prayer book and said that my parents were responsible for the eternal destiny of two and a half million Balinese. I thought it depended on us. My dad wrote a book called Battle for Bali. We were all soldiers. We were purpose-driven. Everything was mission critical. My parents were heroes. This made me neurotic about everything. I remember having a, a cheap Timex watch. I treated it as if it was a Rolex. I would pray at night, prayer formula, 50 times in a row that it would not break. I don't know why I was so fixated on it. But it became a metaphor for my life. Everything was on the verge of breaking down and apart in a way, and, and I prayed hard that it wouldn't. And that prayer had nothing to do with worship. It was all worry. So I read with fascination recently a book that Kat Martinuzzi, um, we miss her, and Chris, talked about in a podcast, a catechesis series Father Andrew Unger put together a few years ago. You remember that series? And the book that she recommended was entitled, The World is Not Yours to Save. I needed that book 50 years ago. And this is what Tyler Wiggs Stevenson writes, who wrote the book. In real life, heroes are often distorted figures whose outsized commitment to making something happen carries a cost paid by someone or something else. Family, community, conscience, and so on. Christians are not free to make such sacrifices. There is nothing God needs us to do so badly that it warrants neglecting some aspect of Christ-likeness in our lives. It is in and through Jesus Christ and him alone that God has saved and is saving the world. As the disciples worship and doubt on that mountain, Jesus reassures them that the mission rests on him, not them. All authority is given to me, Jesus says, not you. Their authority is derivative. They will do it, but Jesus is the indwelling and empowering force. They don't have to generate it. The task rests in the authority of Jesus, the name of Jesus, and here Jesus invokes the Trinity and the presence of Jesus. He doesn't tell the disciples how the commission will be fulfilled, which will become apparent to them as subsequent events unfold. 
In other words, Jesus is telling his disciples to trust him. They will know what to do when it is time to do it, and he will empower them to do it. Last week, we baptized Eleanor and Hunter into the family of God in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. I learned about the authority of that triune name when I was in the ninth grade. A young woman who lived with us was possessed of evil spirits. We renounce them in the powerful name of Jesus. And things happened in front of my eyes that were amazing and terrifying and wondrous all at the same time. And we simply witnessed and recorded what Jesus did. It's not a story we made up, but it was a series of encounters that revealed the power of Jesus in the name of Jesus, not a talisman. It wasn't just ritual that symbolized what we wanted to be real. It was not magic or magical thinking. It was real. I saw power encounters that people don't believe, but I do. Telling my stories to people in a church in Scarsdale, New York, they responded, it's a good thing we love you, Rob, because you're crazy. <laughs> I thought about that. Crazy and love. Crazy love. That's another book. I think Francis Chan wrote that, right? The love of God and Jesus poured into our hearts. The work and purpose of the Trinity is, I guess you could call it, crazy love. The Trinity makes no logical sense, but through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, we can partially grasp something of its truth and live into its implications. You can't make this story up. In his book, Celebrating Liturgical Time, Janiel Alexander writes about the Trinity as a unity of love among three persons. Trinity Sunday... This is Trinity Sunday, in case you didn't know. Trinity Sunday is a bold reminder that the story of our faith is a unified story, just as the nature of God is a unified nature, even if encountered as distinct persons. With our tendency to break things into parts in order to make them more manageable, Trinity Sunday is a powerful reminder of the indivisible inner integrity of the whole. The authority... And the power comes from the love which binds the three persons of the Trinity together. In that love, they remain within each other. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And by that love, they also go out to accomplish that which they had planned from the beginning. To create the world, Susan read to us earlier. Make man in their image and to breathe life into both. And the life of God is inseparable from the love of God. Life is love. Love is life. And I believe in God and the Trinity, not only because of the power, but because of the love which brings the power to, to bear on the despair, the empty promises, the deadly deceits of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God, the sinful desires of the flesh that draw us from the love of God, Love of God, which sets us free, free from the law of sin and death. This is the gospel. The disciples have Jesus. They have the love of Jesus, which, we, which will be poured into their hearts by the spirit of Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. He himself is the good news. And what was the mandate that Jesus followed? It wasn't the Great Commission. It was the Great Commandments wholehearted love for God and neighbor. And this is what Jesus told uh, his disciples to teach. All that I have got, uh, commanded you, love God and love neighbor. 
The first principle of spiritual formation is this. A spiritually formed person loves God and others. So the Great Commission, it flows out of the Great Commandments. And both find their origin in the Trinity, an exchange of love among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and an overflow of that love into the entire world. There's a cosmic dimension to it. And that Trinitarian essence is hidden in the Jewish creed, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And Jesus adds to the Shema, Leviticus 19.18, the love of God expressed in love of neighbor. This was the creed that Jesus lived by and was made manifest in his person, one of the three persons of the Trinity, whereby we are drawn into and made one with God and with neighbor. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Please don't saw that limb off prematurely. I believe our work is not to plant more churches, but to plant the gospel in people's hearts because it is the gospel that forms disciples. We are followers of Jesus who make us one regardless of the church we go to. We are all followers of Jesus whose love in us and through us draws all people to God. Amen.